Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name is Chad Kim. With me this week will be Tom Velasco and Trevor Adams, as usual. Uh, this week's conversation will focus on Gregory of Nyssa's The Life of Moses, the second part. So the first part was mostly a narration of his life from the book of Exodus and uh, Numbers and Deuteronomy, um, focusing primarily on Exodus. But the second half is the theological allegory, the interpretation that he makes of this story. And so this conversation will talk a lot about what does allegory mean, why it might be helpful. Uh, we also start the conversation off in a little bit of a strange direction. Um, I pose the question about whether or not we can understand the Trinity simply from Scripture, or how, do we talk a little bit about where exactly the Trinity is found in Scripture and whether it's self-evident and what that would mean for theology. So that part of the conversation begins, but then we move further into um, the second half of the life of Moses from Gregory of Nyssa. Um, as I did last week, I will put a couple of links down in the bottom of the Facebook page. So if you haven't followed us on Facebook, please follow us on Facebook, like our page on Facebook. Um, and when I post the new episodes there, I will also post uh, links to uh, articles that I reference. One of them is a guy called David Bentley Hart. Um, I'll also post a link to the text that we're reading. So go there. That's a good place to look for additional resources. Um, and if you ever have any questions about the podcast, about what we're talking about, um, or you know any place that you can get further reading, we'd be happy to try and help insofar as we are able. So please uh, like us on Facebook and post your questions there. Uh, also, have, I've had a few ratings on iTunes since our last episode, which has been great. Our response to the first episode that we produced has been awesome. We had almost 2,000 downloads in the last week, which is great. Um, so we're getting a lot of um, a lot of participation. The community is back in full force. We're over 415 likes, and my wife finally uh, is the first one to or finally liked my podcast. So, um, so yeah. So there's been a lot of big movements, a lot of big news. Um, but yeah, we'd also really appreciate it if you could give us a rating and a review on iTunes. It'll help people find the podcast and increase the amount of people who are talking about what does our history mean for our understanding of theology. And this is a critical part of what it means to know God better. Ultimately, Tom, Trevor, and I's heart for this podcast um, is that people will understand the history of Christian theology, all hopefully so that they can be un better understand God um, who reveals himself to us in Scripture um, and and uh, as part of the church. So uh, we really appreciate your listening, um, appreciate your support, rate us on iTunes, follow us on Facebook. Um, that would be really helpful. We really appreciate it. So here, I mean, I, maybe I asked this when we were going through the um, – going through that bit uh, of the Council of Nicaea. Uh, but I, I, I do just sort of broadly have this question because I'm not sure. I don't think, I, I don't know. I can see where this could potentially get off the rails. I think that Trinitarian theology as presented at Nicaea and sort of confirmed and formalized at Constantinople is the way to view and understand the Christian God. Do you guys think that it's obvious in Scripture? Like, if there if there had never been a Niceno Constantinopolitan definition, uh, like you know, like does it? Re I mean, I can see where it's found in Scripture, but I don't no, know that it's, it's not obvious in Scripture. No. I, I think you have to. You definitely. It's essentially that certain passages. It has to do with tension in passages, right? Yeah. Passages assert Jesus is Godhead. Passages assert the oneness of God. Passages assert that there's the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Passages assert that Jesus isn't the Father. I mean, it's and you just have to kind of you have to wrestle through them all. And, and I'm not, I think I think you get the Niceno Constantinopolitan Creed based on the work of theologians throughout time dealing with heretics, but the heretics, I think themselves were just reading all these passages, trying to make sense of them. I, I do think, I will say this, that the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed is the best assessment of what the scripture teaches when taken as a whole. I think if you go through and you reason through all the passages, it's the one that, that accounts for the tension. I think anything else 
is just contradicted. Modalism is contradicted by the clear teaching in the scripture that the son is not the father. Arianism is, is contradicted by the clear teaching that Jesus is uncreated and is God. So I think, yeah, I mean, you could do some language gymnastics and try to deduce whatever view you want. I kind of think to a certain extent, I don't think every view will come out, but it seems as if, right. So like if you're a hardcore modalist, you're going to read hero Israel, Lord, our God, Lord is one. I do not share my glory with anyone. And then you're going to sit there and go, well, I'm going to now do my best to try to make that fit. And you could try to, I think you can spin it maybe, but I think it's more of an argument from best explanation more than it is just straight deductive from the Bible. It's more like, why would someone talk this way if they didn't think X? And in our situation, it would be the Nicene Creed. If they didn't think the Nicene Creed and they said all that stuff, it just seems really unlikely that they were, I think, any of the other views. And it also, I just don't think, yeah, I just don't think it explains how crazy of a view otherwise. I mean, if they didn't think the things mentioned. But, I, I mean, I think tradition's got to be somewhat important to this for sure. Well, and as much as it may not seem like it, I do think that it does apply to what's at stake in the life of Moses. Um, well, yeah, which, let's get to Moses now. <laughs> um, so I'm going to make a transition that that may like like I think I think it connects. Uh, but we've been reading Life of Moses. We read the first half. Uh, it's in two parts. So the first part, what Gregory of Nyssa argues. The, the first part is rather boring, and and it is um, it is his literal reading of Moses. So why does he care about Moses at all? Well, um, in Moses uh, in Exodus, it says that um, Moses spoke to God as one speaks to a friend. Um, he spoke with him face to face. So he speaks. He is a friend of God. He and he is this sort of he has such unity with God. He literally climbs the mountain um, and has converse with God on Sinai. Um, Right. So this is taken by Gregory of Nyssa to be sort of paradigmatic for people who want to come to communion with God. Uh, And so he, he sort of starts from the, the bare bone facts of the story. And this is a literal reading. So, I mean, this is what I've been studying for the last three months or two months, something like that, is the the sort of what has been simply termed the Antiochian literal exegesis and the Alexandrian uh, allegorical reading. And Nyssa, although not from Alexandria, reads in the tradition of the more allegorical reading. But the fact of the matter is that he does his own literal reading first in order to get to the allegorical reading. They're not done at the expense of one another. They're done in unison. So the first part is just his more straightforward reading. Um, And then the second part is his saying, okay, now let's go deeper. So, I mean, my point in making that connect to the Nicene Creed part is I think there is a certain sort of face value part of Scripture where it might not be at least patently obvious to everyone who reads it, a Trinitarian Chalcedon definition. But in conjunction with conversation with theologians uh, and bringing together a bunch of different passages, you can come to this reading. So ultimately what is going on in this allegorical reading is it's not saying that this is right on the page for all to see. It does require a little bit of work. Um, And I think the same thing could be said for reading, uh, for understanding God as triune, as trinity uh, in the scriptures. It's not maybe the most obvious thing on the page, uh, but it's there. And so I think think that that, that's how Gregory of Nyssa reads what he's doing. Uh, You know, but we could start, like, we could start right from the beginning, uh, which is kind of funny. Before you get into any further, can I just maybe add something just to kind of set things up a little bit on this. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about the allegorical reading a lot. I mean, that's, you know, I, I do worry for our listeners. I don't want them to feel like we're beating a dead horse, but you know, you come across readings we're trying to just basically go with what 
what the texts are saying. I mean, this is where the theologians are at. Um, but to, I think maybe frame this just a little differently, not, I think, contrary to how you did it, but just for our listeners' understanding, kind of to present why an allegorical reading was deemed so necessary. Um, if anybody has ever wrestled with the problems that arise when you try to read certain passages in the Bible literally, things like God's command uh, to the Israelites to perform genocide against the Canaanites, uh, things like, uh, things like, um, for instance, um, uh, you know, the, the, well, as Gregory of Nyssa brings up, the death of the firstborn children in Egypt. Um, when, when you consider many of these things that are brought up in Scripture, they seem inconsistent with God's character, and they certainly seem inconsistent with the teaching of Scripture, right? Um, our, our founding, the, or not founding fathers, the, the church fathers were on the whole pacifists. How do you be a pacifist if your Scripture records all of these exploits of warriors? So the way that they made sense out of the Old Testament was to allegorize it, to say, hey, when God says to the Israelites, go out and kill all the children, wipe out every Canaanite, he couldn't have meant it literally. He couldn't have meant, do in fact go and kill men, women, and children, because God wouldn't do that. That's inconsistent with his character. Um, instead, what he means is something different. Perhaps something like, uh, if you are going to walk in the Spirit, and if you're going to be a spiritual person or a perfect person, as Nyssa implies, you need to annihilate all sin, no matter how small, from your life. And, and so there's an allegorical interpretation. And what Nyssa says, and I don't want to jump too far the gun, but he, he brings up the question uh, about the death of the, in the death of the firstborn in his chapter on that. And he says in uh, section 100, he says, do not be surprised at all if both things, the death of the firstborn and the pouring out of the blood that is for the, you know, for the Passover, putting the blood on the door, he goes, did not happen to the Israelites on, uh, and on that account, reject the contemplation we have proposed. What he's saying is, don't be surprised, reader, if actually this never happened historically. He's actually saying, don't be surprised if it never happened. That doesn't undermine the scripture because the point isn't to tell you a story that is historical and factual. The point is to give you a spiritual understanding uh, of what's going on. And in this particular instance, um, he essentially is just saying that the um, that basically the death of the firstborn uh, is kind of similar to what I was just referencing, that when you become a believer, the 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 if you allow the, the small things in your life that plague you with sin to persist, then it will fill your whole life. So you have to destroy those small things. So anyway, all that to say, these guys are answering these questions. And I think it's funny because I've had friends who've come to me and said, I can't be a believer. I can't believe God would order the annihilation of the Canaanites. I can't believe he killed the firstborn. And you Christians don't have an answer for this. And these early fathers would say, oh, yeah, we do. We don't read the Bible at all in that way. And just for our listeners, I'm not endorsing the allegorical reading. I just want them to understand that they looked at the Bible differently from how an evangelical does today. And they, it's, I mean, this was a long standing tradition. A lot of guys did this. That's why we've talked about it so much. Sorry to take so much time. I think it's perfectly well said. Um, and yeah. hopefully uh, I, I, you know, I may, I don't. I, well, actually, I wrote a schedule up for us a little while ago, but it would be interesting to pull a few readings from the Antiochian school, um, Theodore of Mopsuestia, um, even John Chrysostom, actually. We, maybe we just read some John Chrysostom as a representative. He seems to be connected to the Antiochian school as well, actually. Um, but where they have a little bit more, like, uh, there are these guys, uh, Theodore of Tarsus, Theodore Mopsuestia, Theodore de Cyrus, there are uh, representatives of the Antiochian school who read the scriptures and say, who say basically against origin, you can't disregard the historical facts, facts of the scripture. Um, so there are church fathers who are absolutely um, 
convinced that to read the scripture correctly is to read it as if those things historically occurred. Uh, But, you know, either by God's grace or if you don't look at it this way, (laughs) by the fault of the church, we preserve both. We preserve Gregory of Nyssa and we preserve John Chrysostom. And both consider them conversation partners for the tradition. Um, we look a little less favorably upon Origen and actually Theodore of Mopsuestia. Um, they're, they're a little bit more questionable in the tradition. But certainly Nyssa and Chrysostom are both firmly rooted in the tradition. And Chrysostom errs on, no, if it's, if it's historical, that's what I think. Um, and Nyssa, who we're reading now, would say, eh, I, I, you know, it's not the most important thing to me, uh, whether or not it actually occurred as it says. Um, and then contradistinction to both of those, uh, will come the, you know, my, my favorite of them all, St. Augustine, uh, who, who sort of is trying to figure out exactly where he fits with all of that. Uh, but he at least needs a literal reading of Genesis uh, in order to get his, uh, uh, original sin off the ground. Doesn't, um, he, doesn't he seem to do a little bit of both? I mean, doesn't he kind of embrace both schools to a certain degree? Yeah, so there's a whole book written on how Origen influenced early Augustine, uh, and uh, yeah, he there's so one one uh, one scriptural kind of um, passage that Origen and actually Augustine and and Gregory of Nyssa leverage into their deeper reading is when Paul says in Second Corinthians, uh, I believe it's three six, he says. The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And so Origen will refer to this all over the place. Nyssa uses it. Augustine uses it to say, uh, and like I said, to sort of leverage, like, okay, here we have Paul telling us we can go for something more than what just what's at stake in the letter. Uh, and they'll also leverage uh, Paul's reading in Galatians of Hagar and Sarah um, as the old, as like, um, he actually uses the term allegorical, uh, in, in, in or in, uh, did I say Genesis? I meant Galatians. Yeah. Uh, Galatians. But, but it, uh, in Galatians. And so they'll use that Galatians passage. They'll use second Corinthians as, like I said, as kind of like a tool as a stepping stone to say, see, Paul allows us, gives us license, um, to look a little bit deeper than, than just what's historically at stake. Well, can I take it? Can I bring up another example in Paul? I mean, it seems pretty clear that to some degree, Paul felt really comfortable with the allegorical interpretation. He never denies the historicity of events in the New Testament. There's no like he like for instance in the example with Hagar, he never says Hagar didn't exist, and he doesn't say that Abraham didn't cast out Hagar and her son Ishmael. He doesn't say those things weren't actual things that happened. He just said that God has taught us an, a lesson through that metaphor, through that allegory, through that spiritual uh, teaching. However, there is a passage where he almost, I don't want to say, he, he kind of throws out the literal interpretation. And that's in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 9, where he's reflecting back on Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, where he talks about not, in Deuteronomy 25, it says, verse 4, it says, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading the grain. Uh, so if you're if, if an ox is treading, don't muzzle him. In other words, let the ox eat the food, eat the grain while he's working. Like don't don't hinder him from that. Paul in First Corinthians nine says that's an allegory. That's referencing the fact that ministers of the gospel who are working to further the gospel, we should be allowed to receive uh, basically money for doing it. Not not doing it in the sense of working. Um, you know, like as a wage, but that people should support us kind of for this work. We should be allowed to partake of the fruitfulness of the work we're doing, which is bringing people, uh, bringing people to Christ. He says that should be allowed. And he goes on and he says, now when God said this, did he say it because he's concerned with the oxen? No, he's concerned for your sakes. So he actually, it's not that he says that the principle wouldn't be true for oxen. It's just that he's saying God doesn't care about the oxen, at least not in the same way he does about people, and that the point of the command isn't specifically for oxen, but rather for humans. So in there, he even goes a little bit further in almost uh, preferring the allegorical interpretation. 
Well, um, I, I think the, I mean, I love this conversation and I'm sorry for making it a referendum on the two different readings of scripture, except for that they're both alive and well in the period that we're studying. Um, and, uh, and, and they will have some interesting afterlifes, uh, in the, in the later writings as we move on deeper into later antiquity. Um, but just to give sort of interesting little examples and, and stuff from, I mean, we're not gonna be able to go through every passage from, uh, the second part of the life of Moses, but like, you know, to give a, for instance, you know, one thing that he does with the birth of Moses, just to start from the beginning is he says, if one wants to imitate Moses, one obviously can't be born just like Moses was. So what birth are we to learn? Uh, from reading this story about Moses's birth, well, it's a second birth uh, into virtue, right? And it's it's the free will that we have that our rational soul gives birth to virtue, um, and so it's sort of like that's the kind of reading that he's endorsing. And and well, uh, I, the other one that I really liked, Tom brought up the death of the firstborn. Um, I also wanted to take a look at the end, the, one of the very last ones that he does, uh, which is uh, as I brought up from the start, uh, the the friend of God, uh, Moses as the friend of God and what that means, because that's, that's kind of why he thinks Moses is so paradigmatic. Um, but yeah, but he starts, but he starts right off with saying, okay, I'm not telling you when you read this, um, the most, like when you imitate Moses, you can't imitate his birth, but you can, uh, by your free will, he calls, he calls free will the midwife, um, and, uh, the, that, that births a virtuous life. And that's the kind of thing that he's seeking after, which I don't know why that should be, uh, pro- a problem for, for an evangelical reader, um, except for it's just, it might be difficult to predict exactly where Gregory of Nyssa is going to go on some of these things. Um, but. Yeah, I want I wanted to bring up what I thought was probably the controversial one, which was the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Okay, uh, especially since this has implications for reformed friends and whatnot. Okay. But he, uh, let's see here, well, it would be in section I guess seventy three is when it starts. But he, uh, where? Oh gosh, I hate it when I do this. When I when I just have the passage in front of my eyes, and then I can't find it. Oh yeah, so he, he basically says, uh, "Still, Pharaoh is not hardened by the divine will, nor is the frog-like life fashioned by virtue. For if this were to be willed by the divine nature, then certainly any human choice would fall into line in every case." Which is basically saying, "So Pharaoh." Pharaoh's heart was not hardened by God's divine will because, well, heck, if this happened, we would all be determined. Like, it's essentially like, right, yeah. what we what we know in philosophy is the argument against free will from divine foreknowledge or something like that. But, um, and also just oft, often the arguments that are given toward reformed people about our free will. But, yeah, I thought, I mean, that was another thing I thought he, I thought was interesting that he wanted to explain away, um, since free will seemed obvious to him and it seems obvious to him, which and the reason for is he says, I think near the end of the passage that, um, that basically evil can only be caught. Oh yeah. It is evident that nothing evil can come into existence apart from our free choice. So he really wants, it's kind of funny because it's still like what happens today. It's like we have our free will defense against the problem of evil and we really like it. And so in order to preserve it like perfectly, he finds that he's got to like reinterpret this passage allegorically. So anyway, well, he takes it as axiomatic that you cannot have uh, your will determined. He just, it's obvious. He, he thinks, um, which yeah. again, I mean, in terms of ramifications for people who maybe come from a more deterministic event, whether they're reformed or whether they, you know, lean that way in some other tradition, um, we really haven't come across anybody yet, any theologian yet, who really leans that way. We will, but all the theologians we've come across so far are staunch defenders of free will. Um, and and like you just said, Trevor, he does just essentially interpret the passage differently. Um, and he, in section 76, in trying to explain it, uh, actually I'll back up to 75, he says, who is it who delivered up uh, to shameful affections uh, can be clearly learned from the apostle. 
Here it is. It is he who does not like to have God in his knowledge. God delivers him up to passion, whom he does not protect because he is not acknowledged by him. So he's saying, he's actually referencing there Romans 1 and then right before in Romans 9, um, or the early part of Romans 9, who is the one, actually no, it's Romans 1, who is the one that God delivers up? Somebody who doesn't hold the knowledge in his mind. Um, And then he says, it is as if someone who has not seen the sun blames it for causing him to fall into the ditch. Yet we do not hold that the luminary, that is the sun, in anger pushes that person into the ditch. Rather, we interpret the statement in a more reasonable manner. It is the failure to participate in the light that causes the person who does not see to fall into the ditch. So what he's saying is what the Lord offers is there, and it's the person's who the person who doesn't want to retain God in his knowledge, who doesn't see what is there. Um, I still think that that's a little difficult uh, to take as an explanation for why it says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Um, but the best I can, the best I can do with it essentially, I think is that he's saying that a person whose heart is hardened is in a manner of speaking hardened by the Lord because he's blinded to the, to the, uh, to the help that the Lord has given. Um, and because he's blinded and because God is not going to enforce, to force that sight upon somebody, um, this is me again trying to make the best sense of what he's saying as I can. Um, he is going to be, he is hardened, and in a manner of speaking, it is God who's hardening him. That's kind of what I think he's saying there, but it's, it's I still think he has a problem with the language. The language sounds like God is actively doing something. Um, but Yeah, well, and one thing, I, I guess, um, maybe it just is a nod to some of our Reformed listeners or some of those, like, I, you know, of course, uh, I, I don't really consider myself Reformed, broadly speaking, but I love St. Augustine. And, you know, one thing that he will do that that we'll see is he has he has a different definition of freedom and, and really enlarges the sense of will. Um, and so the problem, the, the ancient philosophical problem of, of acrasia or um, failing to desire the good or um, failing to um, live up to what is best, uh, you know, for, for some of the ancients seems to just be a problem of education. You just don't know better. Um, and Augustine is going to take seriously Romans 7, uh, where he, you know, what, where Paul says, why are the things that I want, the things that I want to do, I do not do. And the things that I don't want to do, I do. It's not a problem of education. It's a failure of will. Um, and so Augustine is really going to heighten this sense of will. Um, and, and so have to change his definition of freedom in order to account for this failure of will. And, and that's where we will get into this problem of, of, of human, uh, uh, human freedom and, and, and divine foreknowledge. Uh, but that all that is to say that there, you know, I think it can be easy to dismiss uh, Augustine as actually, if any of you read first things, I'll guess that some of you read first things. Uh, David Bentley Hart recently posted a new thing where he just uh, skewers uh, St. Augustine and I vomited it in my mouth. Um, he says that it. Uh, he says that essentially his failure to understand Romans five has caused the worst theological readings that the West has ever seen, um, and basically just says that any theology done post Augustine is a massive failure uh, due to Augustine's misreading of Romans five. Um, and I was like, wow. <laughs> well, and for our listeners who want maybe a little context on who David Bentley Hart is, he's Eastern Orthodox. Um, and there's no love lost between Eastern Orthodox and more reformed or not just reformed again, anybody who kind of, um, who kind of holds to some view of, uh, kind of a strong view of predestination, I should say, and bondage of the will, the idea that the will is in some sense bondage in bondage, people who hold to some view like that, whether they be reformed or whether they be kind of, uh, you know, fall into that camp in the Catholic church. David Bentley Hart is not a fan of those guys. And in general, the Eastern Orthodox don't tend to tend to, to, to favor that either. Well, um, and, and he's part of the reason that we're reading this particular life of Moses is because I actually really like a lot of the things David Bentley Hart says, and he holds this up as one of the great theological allegories. 
uh, and, and says that uh, this kind of reading is, you know, this is the best example of this kind of reading. Um, so, yeah. So anyway, it's not, it's not that I actually don't like David Bentley Hart. He also recognizes that uh, the most divine uh, game that is played is baseball and has a great... <laughs> Which Art. now, right now, we are all experiencing because baseball right now is fantastic. And yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah I don't watch baseball. Our listeners, Chad really likes David Bentley Hart. He's he's passed on many David Bentley Hart books to me and recommended much to me. So it's not a slamming of David Bentley Hart by any means. I just was reflecting on the uh, on the the fact that there's maybe little love lost between him and people of other theological persuasions. Well, and I mean. Let's let's be frank. I mean, David Bentley Hart likes it when people uh, he likes to be the instigator. Yeah. Um, that's uh, he has a whole set of things that he speaks against William Lane Craig, which I know that uh, if Trevor's actually seen those, they're on YouTube. Uh, he doesn't like uh, William Lane Craig at all. Which uh, Trevor is a fan of William Lane Craig, I do believe. He's he's a good popular level philosopher. Well, that was a not a ringing endorsement. <laughs> no, I, <laughs> I I've always heard you say really positive things. Yeah. <laughs> well, he's yeah, he's got I don't know. I I don't want This isn't about William Lane Craig, but he's okay. good. Okay. But he's not the I don't know if he's the best philosopher to be honest. But no, he's not the best. I, I don't think there's any question about that. Yeah. So, uh <laughs> <laughs> one thing that we'll see, one thing that we'll see in this, like in a lot of these exegesis, I mean, you can predict some of the way that he's going to go, uh, because of course Moses climbs the mountain, the mountain of divine knowledge. Um, you know, a lot of this uh, is sort of, you know, in the background, uh, and we can ask this as a question: How determined is his reading uh, by broadly Platonist or Neoplatonist readings? Um, of course, ascending uh, is is super important. Uh, so returning uh, to the one, the good, the beautiful, these sorts of things. He says he says at the beginning that Moses uh, was fallen uh, into the body, um, and so for for those of you know, so if you begin to read a lot of this uh, allegorical reading, uh, and even Augustine will mimic some of this as he has his own Platonist influences as well. Um, you'll see that any time that scripture speaks of someone going up, it's a positive thing. And anytime they're going down, it's a negative thing. And, and you sort of uniquely, our language reflects this uh, when we talk about heaven and earth, right? Or heaven and hell, right? I mean, hell is below, heaven is up. Um, it, a scientific uh, worldview wouldn't allow us to say anything like that. Uh, but those of us who have been raised in the Christian tradition, uh, it, it's somewhere in the cultural firmament uh, that, you know, that, well, obviously, when, where you, when you point to heaven, it's up. Um, and it's because of writers like uh, Nyssa and Origen um, that we think that way. Um, and the creeds, I mean, Jesus descends into hell um, and ascends and is resurrected up. Uh, into heaven. And so they're just, you know, using this language. So uh, Moses climbs the mountains and, and gains this sort of unity uh, with God that's beyond the boundaries, he says, of language. And there's some other wonderful stuff about language. But uh, those are just some common features that you'll see in, in this sort of allegorical uh, reading. Can I reference a passage that I'm a, a big fan of? Sure. Yeah, well, please. Fan's probably the wrong word. But um, that I found interesting because it ties into one of Paul's allegorical references. So we've been talking about the fact that Paul undoubtedly uses allegorical interpretation of Scripture. Um, and it's the section that Nyssa does on crossing the Red Sea, right? So okay. he, he talks about, about Israel, of course, which is recounted in Scripture as a miracle. The Red Sea is parted. Israel walks through on dry land. The Egyptians come behind them. The Egyptians follow them in. To the sea, but after Israel makes it through on the other side safely, the waters pass over, killing the Egyptians. Um, <clears throat> he says, "This is Nissa speaking. No one who hears this should be ignorant of the mystery of the water. He who has gone down into it with the army of the enemy emerges alone." leaving the enemy's army drowning in the water. And essentially what he does, he goes on to, to basically say that 
that the sea, the, the parting of the Red Sea, this is a picture of baptism, right? You walk in, you, you come out, what do you leave behind you? You leave the army of the enemy. You leave the guilt. You leave the condemnation. You leave your sins. All of that is destroyed in the water. You come out as a new creation. Now, I'm not saying that Paul goes so far in his talking about the crossing of the Red Sea using baptismal terms, but I will say this. In 1 Corinthians 10.2, Paul says, they were all, that is Israel, they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And so there Paul is using the same exact uh, imagery, language, the going through the sea to speak of baptism and the cloud. There he's referencing the cloud of smoke, which was the presence of God, which led them by day, which, you know, they, I don't know. I don't ever recall the scripture saying they passed through it, but it was there. He's implying, though, I think, kind of like that baptism in the spirit. So you're baptized in the cloud, you're baptized in the sea. He's using allegorical interpretation for the same kind of stuff and in the same way that this is. Yeah, and I think, I mean, to me, you know, sometimes it can feel like, and this is the criticism leveled against allegorists, um, is that tree no longer means tree, it means Christ. This is Origins reading of Psalm 1. I'm doing a translation of Origins reading of Psalm 1. Um, so like a tree planted by the running waters, for origin, the tree becomes Christ. And it's not obvious why, like actually no other interpreter that I've found actually reads Christ as the tree. It is yeah. just origin. Um, even Jerome, who follows origin, I just was reading today, his reading of it does not follow origin on this. So, yeah. you know, it's just he's, he's making a leap that no one else wants to make. And sometimes that happens with allegory. And that's where, like, people who are critical are like, look, what are you up to? Why do you want to do this? Um, but I think, like, in that moment that Tom is illustrating, it's the beauty of, like, resonances within Scripture, Oh, we've seen a Red Sea before. We've seen water before. What does water mean? Where else? And and I think, you know, I, like to me, that makes it all the more powerful that Jesus uh, goes in, you know, to the Jordan or, you know, I mean, there's these other rivers, these other waters that continue to come up um, that, that, that just uh, makes the reading that much more rich. Um, and that's that to me, that's the beauty of it. And it can go awry. Uh, and maybe you think uh, origin takes it too far in Psalm one or something, um, but uh, but yeah, just it well, just makes it have deep, more resonances with other part of scripture. I think that people have a fear, and I understand because I have it, that when you do this, that essentially what you do, like when you allegorize in this way, it's like all the chains are coming off, and now we can just kind of make of scripture whatever we want to. And that's a danger that I, I think is real because when you go into that, when you get into that realm, well, now you are kind of free to start making truth your own. Like, I mean, it's just whatever you want to see in it. And so that's tough. I think that's the fear. I feel it. That's why I tend to shy away from allegory in general. Um, I think, I mean, when I've taught classes on Bible interpretation, I tell my students, don't allegorize. Um, but at the same time, I see the apostles doing it, and I say, it's not really intellectually honest of me to say that they would tell you otherwise. And, and it's certainly this strong tradition in the church. And by the way, it's not just present in these Eastern fathers or even just in the Alexandrian school. There's a vein of it that persists all throughout church history, and it's present in Protestant uh, interpreters. Spurgeon, great Reformed preacher, that guy allegorized all the time. I mean, in, and he comes from a tradition which also tends to shy away from it. And so, again, as I said before, I'm not advocating for allegory, but there's a strong vein of it in church history. And I like the word you just used, Chad, resonances. It is pretty beautiful when you read through the scripture and you pick up these resonances and you start to make some of these ties. You do start to get the sense that, you are getting a deeper and fuller understanding. I think I would probably lean towards myself, uh, uh, you know, uh, taking it, uh, you know, literally. And by that, I don't mean taking the scripture literally. I don't mean actually every bit of it literally. I mean, interpreting each passage according to the intent of the author and according to the, the, the kind of literature that is being presented, you know, things like that. That's where I would lean. But 
acknowledging that there is a legitimacy in allegorical interpretation and and although using it conservatively, uh, encouraging people to use it. I think I would kind of lean that way. Um, that's yeah, because I wouldn't want to just erase the historical stuff the way that the way that Nissa does. Because we want to make a distinction between metaphor and allegory, right? I mean, clearly, those who read some things as metaphor, it's. I don't think it's the exact same as reading something allegorically. Um, I mean, I don't know. Of course, well, an allegory problems. is just an extended metaphor. I, but I, I yeah. think you have a you have a fair point there. My my, what I'm saying is there are some allegories in scripture that are clearly meant to be allegories, like. When Jesus says, "I am the vine, you are the branches," that's a that's meant to be. Actually, that's an analogy. Sorry, um, uh, but when Paul talks about Sinai and and Hagar and the law, he's clearly using allegory in all of that. Um, but what I'm saying is, interpreting passages that don't seem to have been intended to be metaphoric or allegorical yeah. as allegory. That's, I guess, what I well, yeah. The yeah, oof. I mean, we're 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 really <laughs> we're about to get knee deep in this because there's the problem of an, an allegorical reading and an allegorical writing. Yes, and who, yeah. uh, and who we take to be writing, and who God's Spirit is inspiring a certain reading um, or a certain writing, and to what degree um, do those converge, diverge? Um, you know, there's, and, you know, sometimes these guys, uh, like some of the more uh, Antiochians school will actually just say that, um, in fact, there really isn't any allegory. And they just try as hard as they can to ignore uh, Galatians, uh, where Paul uses the term allegory. Actually, I think it's John Chrysostom who says uh, that, um, that Paul doesn't know what he's saying. <laughs> wow. Um, and so he's just like, uh, you know, he's just not great with words. He got confused here. This isn't allegory. <laughs> um, so, you know, there's just, there's just a lot of different ways where they'll try to explain away the allegory. And I mean, you know, if, if people get really interested in this, I've got mountains of literature. Uh, but I love, you know, one way. So Tom says that he wants to return to the original intent of the author and very conservatively use allegory. I was going to draw on, you know, to me, who is uh, the, the eternal font, um, not Jesus Christ, uh, St. Augustine. Is the eternal font. <laughs> uh, of wisdom. Uh, as St. Augustine, who says that uh, there are many interpretations, and some of them are wrong. But if an interpretation leads to love of God and love of neighbor, neighbor it is not vicious. Um, as long as how you are reading scripture leads you to love God more and to love your neighbor better, you know, we can quibble about details, but that's, that's what matters. Um, when you, when you are listening, is that what you're led to? Um, and if that's the case, then it's, it can be considered a good reading, um, which I think is a, is a good way to look at it. I, I think that's a nice way to look at it. I think it, you can still run into some problems because, of course, people could definitely argue the way that we know how to love God and our neighbor is through the proper reading of Scripture. <laughs> you know, so you're into that. But one thing to kind of support what you were just saying, again, um, just again, looking at the allegorical interpretations in Scripture, in John chapter 11, in verse 49, this is actually referencing what you just said about how uh, Chrysostom said that did you say it was Chrysostom who said that I'm Paul pretty sure it's Chrysostom, yeah, who says yeah. that Paul basically just doesn't know what he's saying. Yeah, but it also is to your point where you said, is it the author? Are we talking about the author, the Spirit of God? Like, whose intent are we talking about? In John chapter 11, in verse 49, John the Apostle is, re is recounting a series of events that is happening in the Sanhedrin prior to Jesus being arrested. An argument that takes, out, takes place amongst the members of the Sanhedrin debating about what they should do about Jesus. And some are saying we need to kill him. Some are saying no, because people will riot. He has too many followers. And then in verse 49, he says, then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up saying, you know nothing at all. And then in verse 50, he says, you do not realize it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. So mm. what? now here's what Caiaphas means. 
What Caiaphas means is you guys need to shut up and stop this this bickering because it's a real simple thing that we've got to do. We have to kill Jesus because if we don't, Rome is going to get mad at us because he's stoking um, insurrection and treason, and they're going to come and destroy us. So we have to kill him so that we can put an end to insurrection and treason. That's what he means. But then John the Apostle says in verse 51, now he did not say this on his own, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not only for that nation, but for all the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So John interprets the words of Caiaphas as being inspired by the Holy Spirit. And that what the Holy Spirit intended was that Jesus would die for the nation and for the world for their sins. That's what, that's what John is saying that God meant. But Caiaphas meant something altogether different. So it seems to me that the apostles felt comfortable saying that God's intention might sometimes be different from the author's intention. Sorry, they felt comfortable saying that God's intention is sometimes different from the author's intention, which would undermine kind of the point I was making a bit ago and would undermine the Antiochian school and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, That was John 10... It was John 11, verses 49 through 51. No, through 52. John 11, verses 49 through 52. Uh, fascinating. Um, do we have – I mean, yeah, I, I, I think I've said enough. I think we've uh, – I think this is I think this is a great podcast. It was a great episode. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. I said everything I wanted to say. I just wanted to – Throw in some more reform controversy because we just don't have enough. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I believe more and more that so many of these problems. Uh, well, it's it, there's so many of them are definitely like I mean I guess this is I whether or not I still consider myself sort of more in the analytic tradition or not. I'm so thankful for the idea of definition uh, yeah. because if if you don't if you just take free will. You think that all of them mean the same thing when they're saying free will, and they don't. Yeah. Um, and if if that's if that's the case, you know that I made a lot of the problems with Augustine. I think you know, I mean, he might still be wrong, but you could be precise about where he's wrong. Yeah. Um, and I, I just don't think that most people are aware of the fact that his view of freedom uh, is, you know, libertas is the same as ours. Um, and, and that creates a lot of problems. Yeah. Well, especially now because the modern, at least talk of it is all about whether you could have done something otherwise or principle of alternative possibilities. And that is just so, it would be so anachronistic, even though people do it to throw that on what people used to mean by free will, because it's just such a, even even in philosophy, it's such a new type of way of putting it, basically. So, yeah. Anyway. Oh, and the reason I was asking for the reference, Tom, I'll probably cut this out, but uh, it all it made me think was so. Like we we're being trained by Peter Martins, this guy who I'm taking the seminar from, of tra- being trained to find a commentary from some of these people that I've named in this podcast, Didymus, Theodore, whoever, Origen, uh, and then like sort of uh, com- compare them all and say, okay, what does, how does an Antiochian read it? How does an Alexandrian read it? What is it that's similar? What is it that's different? Um, and so like – and one of the big questions that I have that I'm, I, I want I – think, I think it's at least possible that there's an Antiochian – view of inspiration that's different from the Alexandrian view of inspiration. Um, And so it would be interesting to compare them specifically on that point of whether or not what Caiaphas says was intended by the spirit, Um, in which case you could have a substantial separation uh, between sort of the more, like it seems that the Antiochians have a more, not quite. Ver- so it's, it's actually interesting to go all the way to the extreme. So um, it appears that Eunomius believes in uh, verbal plenary inspiration as it is espoused pretty similarly uh, to evangelicals today, whereby God literally speaks 
words into the ears of the writers. Um, Where did Eunomius write? Uh, so he's an Arian. So he's the one we're going to read. Uh, we're going to read Gregory of Nyssa contra Eunomius. Uh, um, is that next? next? Yeah, that's what's on the docket. Yeah. Um, so Eunomius has Sweet. this kind of, but um, it appears that the Antiochians don't have quite such a literal view. Like they're not going to say, well, it's exactly the same as what God speaks to their ear because they know what Gregory of Nyssa brings up, which is how can God speak if he has not a body? Uh, <laughs> and, and so there's just this sort of obvious problem. What do you mean when you say God speaks? Um, and, uh, and so, you know, so the, uh, the Antiochians are aware of that problem and they don't want to be exactly the same as Eunomius. Um, but then they do, they all feel like that, that basically Origen seems to think that, um, the Holy Spirit inspires the interpretation almost, um, uniquely while reading scripture. Um, but it's not, it's almost separate from the words themselves being, inspired in that same way um and so i think i think that there i i think what i'm i'm maybe believing is that there are you know just a spectrum of what exactly inspiration is Uh, cool renee descartes actually weirdly has a bit about taking scripture literally does he yeah it's in his uh, yeah, I'll never find it. I'll, I'll have to bring it because I had to buy like all his extended works, and he has these like notes that are just random notes, and so it's literally just random topics. And one of them is him. He references a specific verse, and he said, "We can't take this literally. This can't be true." And he goes, "So we must read it this way," and then kind of goes off about how like the Catholic Church shouldn't be mad at him. Because he ref- he doesn't publish some of his works in his lifetime because of what happens to um, Galileo. He saw what happened. And he's like, "Oh, I'm not going to publish this until I'm dead." Then, <laughs> but yeah, but he, but he, um, he, he was, I guess, thinking the whole time they shouldn't get mad at me for this because you can interpret scripture to deal with this, like. That'll do it for this week on the History of Christian Theology. Next week we'll have one more episode from Gregory of Nyssa, and it will be specifically on the Trinity um, called uh, to, A Letter to Adblabium on Not Three Gods. Or There's sort of two different titles for it. Um, so we will have that one for you next week. Thanks again for listening. Uh, please rate us and review us on iTunes and follow us on Facebook. Thank you all so much. Um, we're so happy that, uh, that everybody is listening and downloading and getting involved again. Uh, so we'll, you'll hear from us next week. And, and after that one will be our first new recording, which will start with the confessions. Have a good week.